0: going to invite you to open the Word of God with me to Isaiah chapter 7. We're once again in the Old Testament and we'll spend most of our time here right in Isaiah chapter 7. Two weeks ago we began our four-week Advent series by looking at how God, as our creator, has graciously chosen to manifest himself over and over again to sinners just like us. And then last week, we studied how that our God, who is holy and transcendent, though he is holy and so far above us, yet he provides a way for sinners like us, a way of access into his manifest presence. Well, today's message, we're going to be studying how God gives the most remarkable sign for his most remarkable manifestation. Chapter 7 verse 14 Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold a virgin will be with child and will bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel. That's from the word of our Lord. And as we approach God's word, let's approach our God in prayer. Our Father, we come to you acknowledging our inability to understand and re- respond properly to your word as we ought. We need your Holy Spirit to prepare our hearts. We need you to give us ears to hear and hearts to receive your truth. So we ask for that, O oh Father. We ask for your servant who brings your word, that you would empower him that your word would go forth in power, that you would challenge us, Lord, that you would equip us from the prophecy here that we're about to study. And I pray for anyone in our midst that may not believe this truth, may have serious questions about this truth, that you would engage them, that you would meet them where they are, that you would draw them to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever got a fortune cookie cracked it open and you know maybe you read some of that fortune cookie wisdom that impressed you you know what I'm talking about those fortune cookies they have those little slips of paper with a profound wisdom on them I mean hopefully you weren't too impressed with something you read there but uh, here's some examples of what you might find in a fortune cookie a pleasant surprise is waiting for you a pleasant surprise waiting for you the harder you work the luckier you get. Wow, that is quite profound. Here's some fortune cookie wisdom that surely describes you. You understand how to have fun with others and to enjoy solitude. See how profound that is. That, That probably described most of you in this room. But no, when you read something like this, it's probably not a sign. It's probably not a sign, that's just the nature of fortune cookie wisdom. It's profoundly vague. Actually, psychologists call this the Barnum Effect, after the circus trickster P.T. Barnum. The Barnum Effect describes our tendency to find personal meaning in generic personality assessments or predictions of the future. But the key is, it's generic. And the key is that we bring to these assessments, these predictions our own imagination, our own experience, and read into them something that we think is a profound sign. I see people do this all the time with the Bible, too, ironically. Uh, Some people are so eager for a sign, they want a sign from God, they want a sign from whatever, something beyond themselves, to assure them, to give them certainty, and they are so eager for a sign that they will begin to hallucinate, as it were. They will begin to imagine signs In the clouds and in fortune cookie wisdom and wherever. Because they are so desperate for some meaning, some help, some direction beyond themselves. Well, the Bible is full of signs. I think we know that, right? If you've read through the Bible, you'll see plenty of signs. Many of them given in the forms of prophecies. Some are more or less vague, while others are quite specific and incredible. But the main difference between that is the sign God gives his people and these uh, imagined signs, is that the signs God gives us in scripture were not guesswork. They're not the work of psychological manipulation. They were proof and are proof of God's sovereignty and his omniscience. And today we're going to be examining one of the most remarkable signs ever given by God, not only because it's been at the center of so much controversy, but because it involves... The promise of God's very own presence among his people. It involves the greatest miracle of all miracles. We saw God's manifest presence at Sinai. And his manifest presence in the tabernacle. And his manifest presence in the temple. And all of these manifestations yet pale in comparison to what it is God is about to do in history. And so to prepare us and to prepare the world, God gives his people a sign. And I want you to see how that Isaiah 7, 14 promises the most remarkable sign for God's most remarkable manifestation. Isaiah seven fourteen. this prophecy here has to be the most amazing sign in the Bible. And we will examine three remarkable things about this sign that make it most amazing. Actually, our study will follow the three parts of our text. Notice verse 14 begins, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. This first clause I want to focus on here and this statement shows us the first remarkable thing about this sign. This sign depended on God's unchanging faithfulness. Remarkably, this sign depended solely on God's faithfulness. It was unconditional to his people. Let's examine the story here leading up to this prophecy. Because you have that word, therefore, what is it therefore? Well, the first thing to note is that King Ahaz, who was ruling at this time, the king of Judah, was extremely unfaithful to God. Verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 7 says, now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. In the days of Ahaz. This is when Ahaz was king of Judah. And Ahaz was one of Judah's worst. He was a wicked king. If you read the commentary in 2 Kings chapter 16, you will find that Ahaz offered of his own children to idolatry, to pagan gods. He was a wicked man. And at the time that Ahaz was reigning over Judah, Assyria in the east is growing to power. They are a looming threat for many nations. And so what happens is the king of Syria to the north and the confederation of the the ten northern tribes of Israel gathers together, they unite together against Assyria. But because Judah will not join them in the south, they unite against Judah. And so verse 2 says, When it was reported to the house of David saying, The Arameans, or the Syrians, have encamped in Ephraim. His heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Notice that Ahaz, the king of Judah, is here represented as the house of David, metaphorically. And when he hears that the Arameans, or the Syrians, have arrived, Ahaz and his people are literally shaking like a leaf. They're trembling with fear. The enemy is at the gate. Verse 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son Shear Jashub, to the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. King Ahaz was probably inspecting the city's water supply. Jerusalem was located on a hill, and so that certainly had an advantage in many ways against an assault, but one disadvantage would be the sparsity of water. And so Ahaz, no doubt... Fearful, the armies threatening to come against him from the north, is here preparing for a coming siege. He's looking at the water supply, and here in this state we're told God is sending the prophet Isaiah to him. But notice he is to bring along his son. And if you know what Shear Jashub means, the name of Isaiah's son here, you'll know why this was. Shear Jashub means a remnant will return. The remnant shall return. And so by introducing his son to Ahaz, Isaiah would be giving the king an object lesson of God's faithfulness. Well, verses 4 through 9, God gives Isaiah a message for Judah's king. Verse 4, he says, take care and be calm and have no fear. and Do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. God tells Ahaz through Isaiah the prophet, don't worry about King Rezin or King don't worry about these guys. He said, these guys are just smoldering embers. They're going to burn out. They're soon going to be destroyed. You do not need to fear them. And God explains that he knows what these kings are planning to do and what they are saying to Ahaz. God knows. God knows what your enemies are plotting in your life. God knows everything in life, as it were, that is stacked against you. And that should be a comfort to us. God, again, reassures Ahaz then in verses 7 and 8 that he will foil these plans. He knows what uh, the enemies of his people are up to, and he is going to see that their plans do not come to pass. But God's message for Ahaz does, does come with a warning. If you look at the end of verse 9, God says, If you will not believe, you surely will not last. That's sobering. And so in verse 10 we read, Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol, that is the grave, or as high as heaven. God is saying, you ask what you wish. Now God not only gives Ahaz his word then, that the king does not need to fear the threat coming against him, but what is God saying? He's saying, you ask a sign. God is inviting Ahaz, even though he's an evil king, to trust him. God wants Ahaz to trust him. God wants you to trust him. And so God is inviting this trust. He's offering a sign. He's offering to encourage Ahaz. Certainly weak faith and lack thereof. But notice verse 12. Isaiah seven twelve. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. Nor will I test the Lord. Now, the fact that Ahaz says, I will not test the Lord, if you know in the scriptures, I, it, this kind of gives you a, the air of acting pious. He's trying to sound pious. It may sound pious, but it's anything but pious. We could say, in fact, Ahaz puts on a pious front. But for all this uh, piety or show of it, when we study 2 Kings 16, we see Ahaz is actually at this time plotting to join an alliance with Assyria. Now, you don't have to turn over there, but I want to read for you from 2 Kings 16, where it tells us that Ahaz was an idolater. He did not want to trust in the Lord. That was his problem. And 2 Kings 16, 7 says, So Ahaz sent messengers to take that king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and deliver me. Save me, he says, from the hand of the king of Aram and from the hand of the king of Israel, who are rising up against me. Ahaz clearly believed a false gospel because he's seeking salvation from a pagan empire. He's seeking salvation from Assyria, not from the one true God. And Ahaz doesn't just refuse to trust God. As we go on to read in 2 Kings 16, we see he totally sells out on God. He actually plunders the temple of Solomon. He plunders the temple and... He, he gives the gold in the temple to provide a bounty to fund his idolatrous campaign. Here's Judas king. He's a wicked man. He's an idolater. He refuses to trust God. He plunders God's temple to fund his idolatrous campaign. But Ahaz's unfaithfulness only sets the stage for God's remarkable faithfulness. Notice, God gives a sign, yet he gives a sign... To the house of Judah. And it's a sign on account of his own faithfulness. Verse 13. Then he said. Isaiah says. Listen now. O house of David. Is it too slight a thing. For you to try the patience of men. That you will try the patience of my God as well. Therefore. The Lord himself. Will give you a sign. You see here's the remarkable context. Of this most remarkable sign. God. God yet gives a sign on account of his faithfulness. Now, some have insisted that that this sign the Lord is about to give cannot possibly involve Jesus Christ being virgin-born seven centuries later of Mary. They, They say that can't possibly be because this is about 700 years after Ahaz, and so they argue this sign can't be about Jesus because then it would have nothing to do with Ahaz or even his immediate time period. But we must remember something. It's not only Ahaz here, but it's the entire house of David that is in view. In fact, it is not Ahaz, really, but it is the entire house of David that this prophecy, this whole chapter, this whole book is concerned with. And so while Ahaz represents the house of David as the present king over Judah sitting on David's throne, being in David's lineage, yet he refuses to ask a sign. He refuses personally, individually, to ask a sign of God. And so, you know what? God says, nevertheless, he gives a sign to the house of David. In fact, I know this isn't so clear, perhaps, in the English translation. But in the Hebrew, God plainly uses second-person plural pronouns. When he says, you. Listen now, O house of David, the Lord himself will give you. That's you, plural. God is not speaking to Ahaz individually. He's speaking to the house of David collectively. Because this prophecy is bigger than Ahaz. It concerns the throne of David. It concerns fulfilling what God pledged to David. How he would set one on David's throne who would reign forever. Well, it looks like that's not going to happen. Because what these two kingdoms of the north are saying is, we're going to end your line. And we're going to put our own king on your throne. And God's saying no. My word will stand. What a mercy it is that after Ahaz insults the Lord, is unfaithful to God, and really, if you know the history of Judah, Judah as a nation is unfaithful to God too, yet the Lord still gives a sign. And this prophecy shows God's faithfulness against the backdrop of Ahaz's unfaithfulness. And So the context shows us the first remarkable thing about this sign, the sign depended on God's faithfulness his unchanging faithfulness but the second remarkable thing in this verse that gives us another remarkable thing about this sign is namely that this sign demanded God's miraculous power verse 14 says therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign behold a virgin will be with child and will bear a son I'll stop right there I want to talk about God's miraculous power here but before we do Please understand, Christians who affirm Christ's virgin birth have interpreted this verse in different ways. Good commentators will disagree over the details here. And so uh, I want to begin by saying the main thing here is that we affirm the reality that Christ was virgin born. As the New Testament makes so undeniably plain. And, and it's important that we affirm Christ's virgin birth then regardless of how we interpret Isaiah 7.14. There's room for disagreement as to whether Isaiah 7.14 speaks directly or indirectly to Christ's birth. How did Matthew exactly understand the, Isaiah 7.14? That's another question. But the virgin birth itself is indispensable to Christianity. The doctrine of the virgin birth is central to Christianity. Liberals have assaulted this doctrine for centuries, but it's particularly troubling today that many so-called evangelicals are now saying that this doctrine doesn't really matter. Well, it does. Why does it matter? I want to, just for sake of time, leave you two major reasons that this doctrine is essential to Christianity. First, if Jesus wasn't virgin-born, then the Bible could not be what it claims to be, God's reliable revelation to us. Or at least you'd have to cut out from the Bible the portions about Jesus' miraculous birth. In which case, why believe any of it at all? Secondly, if Jesus wasn't virgin born, then his eternal pre-existence and the union of his divine and human natures could hardly be maintained with integrity. You see, in order for Jesus to be man, true man, he had To be born of a woman. But at the same time, in order for Jesus to be God, true God, he could only have come from God. Because only God can be born of God. Now I understand we see in the New Testament, being born of God in a spiritual sense is something that is true of all God's children. But you must realize that only Jesus Christ is the only begotten of the Father. That is language only appropriate of Christ because it speaks to his nature. He is begotten, not made. As Galatians 4.4 says, God sent his son. God didn't make his son. God sent his son into this world. Jesus then did not begin to exist at his conception in Mary's womb. Jesus pre-existed eternally as he himself taught in John 8. Before Abraham was this is a couple over a couple of millennia before Jesus' birth, but Jesus could say, before Abraham was, "I am." The virgin birth lies at the heart of the Bible's reliability and at the heart of Jesus' identity and His nature, His redemptive work. Maybe when you look at Isaiah's prophecy as, as a Christian, if you believe the Bible, if you believe this prophecy, you may marvel that others do not, and that they do not find this. As compelling proof of Jesus' messiahship. Maybe some of you are there. But uh, you will hear different challenges to this prophecy. And so Christians should be equipped to answer these challenges. Because this prophecy matters. And there are really three general kinds of challenges raised to Isaiah's prophecy of the virgin birth. I want to go over those just briefly. The first is what we might call the grammatical challenge. Because... It has to do with how we understand the Hebrew word Alma, which is here translated virgin. Some deny that Isaiah is actually prophesying a virgin birth to begin with. They say, well, you, you have a wrong translation. Isaiah doesn't actually say that. God isn't actually saying a virgin will be with child. They say that the Hebrew word Alma should be translated young woman, not virgin. And that if God wanted to say virgin, he would have used a different Hebrew word, betula, which... They claim always only means virgin. Well, just a few years ago, a couple of very fine scholars published an entire book on this single Hebrew word titled "The Mother of the Infant King," Isaiah 714." And this is very significant because there has pretty much been a consensus among scholars, certainly non-believing scholars, that uh, that yeah, you know, Isaiah's talking about a young woman here, not a virgin, but these scholars have challenged that, and their work has been hailed as the first comprehensive and exhaustive research on this word Alma done on the basis of modern linguistic semantic principles. And here's the author's conclusion. They said, from an inductive point of view, namely the point of view of the attested evidence, the examination of all the uses both found in the versions and available texts leads the researcher to endorse the following conclusion. Alma designates a teenage girl who is a virgin. A teenage girl who is a virgin. What I'm saying here is that more recent research is now confirming what at least Christians have, uh, most Christians have always understood that uh, just because there's already a word in Hebrew for virgin doesn't mean that, uh, that this word Alma cannot also mean virgin. You see, the word Betula indicates a virgin regardless of age while the word Alma indicates a virgin who is young. A young virgin. A specifically young woman, but she is virgin. So the next time somebody tells you, well, Isaiah 7 14 shouldn't say, a virgin shall be with child. That's not, a, that's not a good translation. You could say, well, it's not the best translation. You're right. It, sh- it really would better read, behold, the Lord himself will give you a sign, a young virgin. A young virgin will be with child and will bear a son. At least the ancient Jews understood this. Because when they, a couple centuries before Jesus' birth, translated the Hebrew scriptures into the Greek Septuagint, they used the word here, Parthenos, in Isaiah 7.14, which always only means virgin. They understood. And this is why Matthew also understood and claimed that Mary's conception of Jesus all took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah. Matthew one twenty two, Matthew could say that because Isaiah's prophecy directly, I believe directly fulfilled what was predicted here. This miraculous virgin birth of the Son of God. Now another challenge that will be raised in addition to this grammatical approach is what we might call the philosophical challenge. And this is where some deny Jesus' birth because they claim, well, this just isn't possible. A lot of people on the street will just say, well, of course, that's impossible. Why would you believe that? I can't believe in the virgin birth because I believe in science. You know, Well, sounds all sophisticated, right? Um, what they're really saying is that they don't believe in anything that science can't explain. At least that's what they're assuming. But that itself is a bad idea. And it's one that you honestly can't consistently live by. Now, sure, science indicates that humans aren't ever virgin-born. We would agree. This just doesn't happen, right? This is a law of nature. But this doesn't actually disprove Jesus' virgin birth. Why? Why is Jesus an exception? Well, it should be obvious to any Christian. Because the Bible never claims that Jesus was simply a human being. But that Jesus was a supernatural being, and then his supernatural birth is only consistent, is only to be expected. Another way you might handle this sort of a challenge, when somebody says, I just don't believe in the virgin birth, it's impossible, it's impossible, is to ask them, how did life, that is life itself, come about in the first place? Ironically, whether a person believes life came about by creation or processes of evolution over billions of years, whatever the case, we must all affirm at least one virgin birth. And that is at some point in time, life came from non-life. It's still you're hear people saying silly things like I don't believe a virgin birth is possible as if to say even impossible for God the creator but look if God the creator can create life from non-life he can surely create life in a virgin's womb without the help of a man the third challenge in addition to the arguing over the grammar or the very possibility of a virgin birth is what we might call the historical challenge and this is where some simply deny or they will say there's not enough historical evidence to believe in the virgin birth. And they'll say whether or not God exists. We just can't be sure this happened historically. And, and some will even claim that it's silly to believe in Jesus' virgin birth because of all the myths. All the Don't you know of all the miracle birth stories in the ancient mythologies? Maybe they'll try to impress you by mentioning something about Osiris giving birth to Horus or you know, some of these interesting mythologies. Of course it's debatable that these myths are actually anything like what we find predicted in Isaiah 714. They're actually not, if you if you study them, but the differences aside, it's not like similarities between truth and error somehow discredits the truth. You know what I'm saying? Christians who know their Bible should expect nothing less than a counterfeit that the devil offers to the truth of God. We're just being consistent here. We should expect that God's promises and predictions, especially something as remarkable as the virgin birth of Christ, would be counterfeited elsewhere by the enemy. And yet, some will still insist yeah, but it's more reasonable to believe the church invented it. We'll just say that's just more reasonable to believe somebody came up with this and invented it. So let's just consider that for a moment. Of all Jesus' immediate followers, they were all Jewish. And their immediate audience was all Jewish. And they most notably began, Christianity began in Jerusalem of all places. And so you have to think about this. If Jews suddenly wanted to win over their fellow Jews to a new cult to follow this Jesus, Messiah, why on earth would they invent a story so scandalous to the Jewish sensibility as the virgin birth? I'm just saying, it wasn't like This is the kind of miracle we'd expect Jews to associate with God. Not with their God. That's just worth thinking about. But even if you don't find that compelling, I would say this. Ultimately, we must inform skeptics that the greatest evidence of Jesus' miraculous birth is his miraculous life. Anyone who could open the eyes of the blind or the ears of the deaf, anybody who could uh, heal the sick and raise the dead, who could create something from nothing, who could command nature. That is someone with all of the credentials of a supernatural birth because they're living a supernatural life. But you can see here, verse 14 says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin, that is a young virgin, will be with child and will bear a son. This is nothing less than an absolute miracle, right? Because virgins don't bear children. Not without a man being involved. And we've already talked about the fact that the word Alma does mean a young virgin. Well, this, this is clearly a miracle then. And the Hebrew word for sign here, coupled with this word behold, this injunction behold, often denotes something miraculous just to be fair, Isaiah doesn't always use the word sign here to denote a miracle. But here in Isaiah 7, there's good reason to believe that at least this sign involves a miracle. Remember in verse 8, God told Ahaz, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol, that's the grave, or as high as heaven. God is saying, you ask the most remarkable thing, and I will do it. It sounds to me like God is inviting a miracle here. And then there's the fact, though, in addition to this, that when skeptics claim Isaiah 7.14, it can't be predicting a miraculous virgin birth sign. Uh, they say it's only that a young unmarried woman is gonna be with child. We should ask, well, how is that really a sign at all? I mean, unmarried women having children happens all the time. So what's the point? But even if we were to grant this word sign is not necessarily implying a miracle. The truth is, the child's name. The child's name signals an even greater miracle at work here. And this is what I wanted to bring you to here. Um, This is what makes this sign so remarkable. It's not just the means. It's not simply that there's a virgin giving birth to a son. That itself is a miracle, but it's who this son is. And when you understand that, of course, the virgin birth itself is just expected. It's no real challenge. Who is this son? What child is this? That's... The miracle of all miracles. This sign is remarkable because it depended on God's remarkable faithfulness to his people. And it would involve God's remarkable, miraculous power. But third and most remarkable about this sign is that this sign declared God's coming incarnation. This sign declared God's coming incarnate presence Notice the final part of our text. Isaiah 7:14 says, "Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign: behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel." And of course, Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1 in his gospel, interprets this for us. This means from the Hebrew God with us. God with us. Does this prophecy mean this miracle birth would literally be the birth of God, though, dwelling among us. I mean, we shouldn't take this literally, right? Well, that's what I want to examine. And the final time together we have studying. Hold your place in Isaiah 7. And uh, let's go once again all the way back to Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And... As extraordinary as this thought is that God could somehow incarnate himself among men, this idea is only consistent with the rest of the Bible. The greater context of the Bible points to Jesus' incarnation. After Adam and Eve fell into sin, God addresses the serpent here in Genesis 3, chapter 15, the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve. God says to the serpent, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed. And her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. And you will bruise him on the heel. This is the very first prophecy in all the Bible. And it's been called the Protoevangelium—that That is the first gospel. Because it foretells how a Savior would be born of a woman. And would suffer while dealing a lethal blow to our enemy. Now what's most fascinating perhaps about this promise is is that the seed here is attributed to the woman, not the man. That, that certainly reversed the natural order in, in the Bible we would see. The only other place in the Bible that I'm aware of where uh, the word seed is ever attributed to the woman is in Genesis 16, where God is speaking to Hagar concerning her descendants, that is through Ishmael, And and the only reason that this is happening is because God is here contrasting Hagar's descendants from Sarah's. So there's an explanation there clearly from the the text for that departure from the natural use. But here in Genesis 3, even though Adam is standing by, even though the ancient Hebrew culture was so strongly patriarchal, God attributes this seed to the woman as her seed. And so the early church identified this language with Isaiah 7.14 that we've just been looking at. Where we're later told that a woman will bear a man-child without a man's seed. So that this savior in her womb is literally her seed. There's no man involved in this conception. Now maybe you don't find that convincing. But this much is plain. From the very beginning, the very first prophecy in the very first book of the Bible, this much is plain. A savior was predicted to come. He would be a man. Because he would be born of a woman. And he would crush the serpent's head. Well, then between this first prophecy in the Bible in Genesis 3 all the way to Isaiah chapter 7 that we've been looking at this morning, in between here we see the God of the Bible appearing on earth in remarkable ways, manifesting his glory to human beings, to sinners like us. And sometimes he even appears in bodily form. Such as in Genesis chapter 18 to Abraham. Or in Genesis chapter 32 to Jacob. And this is all going somewhere. Let's jump back to Isaiah 7. Isaiah 7. Chapters 7 through 12 of Isaiah have often been called the book of Emmanuel. Have you ever heard that? The book of Emmanuel because they center around the same hope. It's a child who is the hope of Israel. And his name, this name Emmanuel, means God with us. That's the hope. God dwelling with his people. Before you say, well, the name is just a metaphor. It's a simpler way to interpret it. Before we say that, I want to show you something. I want to show you the entire book of Emmanuel points to Jesus' incarnation. From Isaiah 7, 1 through 14, we've seen that this sign of a virgin birth was a promise to all of David's house. Not uniquely to Ahaz, anything like that, to happen in his lifetime. No, it is to the house of David. Ahaz rejects the sign. God's going to give it regardless because of his faithfulness to his people, period. But this sign then to David's house doesn't end with verse 14. If we look at verse 15, Isaiah says of this Emmanuel child, he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. Isaiah is saying that this child will live on a simple diet. This is not the diet of your typical king. This this would be like saying today that this remarkable child will eat cereal and milk and rice and beans. This is not the diet of a king. And though he was Israel's king, as we'll see in conjunction with all these other texts, Jesus would live on a simple diet in Galilee. And this child, Isaiah says, will know to refuse evil and choose good, unlike all of Israel and Judah's kings, even the best of them, Hezekiah and Josiah, which are to follow. This theme of this unique child choosing good over evil is actually featuring prominently in chapters 9 and 11 of Isaiah. This wisdom and this righteousness that that is said to be perfect and, and far excellent above any other is of course true of no one like it is true of the sinless son of God, Jesus Christ. Now Isaiah continues in verse 16. He says, before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. And interestingly, you goes back to the singular here. To, uh, he's talking to Ahaz for sure. But some believe that this must refer then to Isaiah's own son who is born in Isaiah chapter 8. But it's more likely this boy, the boy described in verse 16, is the same Emmanuel child, Jesus Christ, who is directly predicted and who will be born centuries later. Because nothing in this chapter, interestingly, and if you study biblical prophecy, this isn't actually so absurd, nothing in this chapter actually tells you when the Emmanuel child will be born. We have clues that it will happen after God's judgment upon the land of Judah, But nothing tells us when he would be born, only that he would be born. And in biblical prophecy, a time gap that that would happen between Ahaz's time all the way seven centuries later to the birth of Christ, that's really not so absurd. It's really not so unusual, especially not for a God who is timeless, a God of whom the scriptures say, a thousand years is but one day. Well, Isaiah has a son in chapter 8. If you look at Isaiah chapter 8, and many have said, aha, This must be the Emmanuel child. This is the prediction of, or the fulfillment of what was predicted in Isaiah 7.14. But it's clearly not the same child. Isaiah's son is not born of a virgin, for one thing, namely. And Isaiah names his son, get this, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Yeah, it's the longest name in the Bible. Poor kid, right? Imagine growing up in his teenage years. Dad, why did you name me this again? Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. Well, Isaiah's child is a sign of judgment. The name means swift is the spoil, speedy is the prey. And so Mahar Shalal Hashbaz is a sign of God's judgment, not his salvation. This is the exact opposite of the child predicted in Isaiah 7. We shouldn't confuse them. Just because one happens after the other, that doesn't prove anything. Isaiah 8 goes on to explain that this judgment coming upon the, the land of Syria and Israel to the north, it's going to cover the land of Emmanuel. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 8. As if to say, Emmanuel, this child who's predicted to come in Isaiah seven fourteen, is the one to whom all the land belongs. He is the rightful heir because he's the king of kings, of course, as we'll see. Well, the rest of chapter A offers hope to the remnant. They will escape destruction because of the fact God is with us, verse 10, for instance. Um, Then we come to Isaiah chapter 9, and the situation is bleak because God's judgment has come to Israel. And they are living, once again, under oppressors. And yet, in this oppressive situation, Israel's hope is that the light has shined to them. And you know what? Ironically, it shines in Galilee, where Jesus would do most of his ministry. and Of course, the Gospels recognized this was a fulfillment. Jesus' ministry in Galilee was a fulfillment of Isaiah 9. And Isaiah 9, we get down to verses 6 and 7, explain that this hope, this salvation, this light that is to come to Israel is to come to them in the form of the most remarkable child ever. It's the son that God gives the house of David. Isaiah 9:6 For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders... And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Sounds like God with us. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David or over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is not... One of Isaiah's sons. This is not one of uh, Israel or Judah's best kings that we find recorded in the Old Testament. Not even Hezekiah or Josiah. This is only descriptive, could only be descriptive of the true king of kings and lord of lords. This child is true man because he's born of woman. That's plain in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9, but he's also true God He's called God, the mighty God. This is the same Messiah king that Micah foretold would come out of Bethlehem. In Micah 5 two, his goings forth are from old, even from days of eternity. Why, why is this so hard for us to see in Scripture? That the Christ child that would come into the world pre-existed. Not as an angelic being, but as the father of eternity. He's from everlasting to Everlasting. Child to come is the God-man, Emmanuel. He is God with us. In Isaiah 10, we don't have time to look at this, but this child again is referenced as the mighty God. In Isaiah 11 then, most notably, the book of Emmanuel continues to describe this most remarkable child as a shoot. A shoot that will spring out of the stem of Jesse and from, as a branch from his roots. This, this is the Messiah, this is, this child is Israel's hope. He's here pictured as a shoot that springs out of David's family tree, even though the tree has fallen. Yet, here comes this little twig of life. And Isaiah eleven two says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding and the spirit of counsel and strength and the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. You see, while even the wisest of Israel's kings would be proved a fool, this child, will reign with perfect wisdom, perfect righteousness. He's the king that Israel has always needed. And Isaiah 11 goes on to describe how that under this root of Jesse, all the earth will be restored to Edenic conditions. He's not just going to change Israel and reform Israel. He's going to reform the world. This is no ordinary king. This is the God-man. And while these prophecies do not distinguish Messiah's first and second comings here in the book of Emmanuel, it does become clear later on in Isaiah's scroll, because the book certainly continues, that this messianic ruler will also be a servant, especially in Isaiah 52 and 53. He will be a servant who will suffer for his people, and so therefore, of course, we can infer Messiah would have separate comings. He would come to suffer and he will come to reign. At any rate, Isaiah 12 closes the book of Emmanuel with rejoicing. Rejoicing, why and how? Because the Holy One of Israel is said to dwell in her midst. God dwelling in the midst of his people. That's Emmanuel. That is God with us. Isaiah 7.14 promises the most amazing sign. The most amazing sign. Because it involves the most amazing miracle. This is the most remarkable sign involving the most remarkable manifestation of God. God entering the world through the womb of a virgin and dwelling with men as this most remarkable child. This is the hope of all humanity. The gift of God. This is the salvation of the world. This is the salvation of every possible soul. It's contingent upon what we do with this amazing child of God, this child sent for our salvation. Maybe you're listening and you have questions about something we, we talked about. I, there's so much here. We could We could spend a lot of time here, but maybe you have questions. Maybe something doesn't make sense to you, or you'd say you're having trouble believing this prophecy of the virgin birth. Look, whatever the case, if that's you, please let me know. Please don't don't just leave here. We're not going to uh, attack you for disagreeing with us. You certainly have the right to believe as you do. But we, we would love for you to talk with us. I'd love to speak with you. Give us the opportunity to answer any questions you have because this is important. This is the most important thing ever. Christmas is about presents. Presence with a C.E. It's about the presence of God dwelling among his people. And we've seen today how God promised that his presence would one day dwell among his people in this most remarkable way. But, and in this most remarkable child. Next week, we're going to aim to study the fulfillment then of what has been predicted here in Isaiah 7.14. So let's pray.